0: Greetings. I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Phase podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. We are at episode 104, and today's guest is Chris Lynch, CEO and Executive Chairman of AtScale. Chris is a serial entrepreneur and operator who has a tremendous track record at building successful tech companies like Vertica, Acopia Networks, Arrowpoint Communications, and others. He also co founded and was a general partner at Accomplice, a VC firm where he led investments in early stage companies. He's back into an operating role with AtScale the global leader in data warehouse virtualization, the company has raised $120 million in funding, including a $50 million Series D round, which was announced this past December and led by Morgan Stanley. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Chris's background and what his paper route taught him about entrepreneurship, a walkthrough through the different companies and his experience as an investor, all about his current company at scale, including what the company does, the story of how he got involved and its future plans, how he learned to manage and build sales teams, advice for founders trying to build out their go-to-market sales strategy, his charitable work with the St. Baldrick's Foundation and why it means so much to him, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to consider adding a biz page for your company. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps keep your company top of mind with our target audience of professionals in the tech industry. A subscription includes a biz page for employment branding, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and more. If you're interested in some of the additional details, please send an email to info All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Chris. Chris, thanks so much for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Chris, I, like when I talk to someone uh, with your type of background, obviously you've had multiple success stories under your belt. I always like to ask the question, like, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep building companies?
1: Well, I, I think at this stage of my career, I think it, and, and it's it probably is something I didn't understand. Um, but I think the things that drive people um, really are rooted in their, their upbringing and and um, you, know, the, you know how their personality forms as a young person. So I think that if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have told you that I keep doing this because I need to provide for my family. I want to, you know, provide them security. I want to provide them an opportunity to do things in life that they want to do, irrespective of, you know, the economic implications. And you know, I want to raise them to be, you know, better than me. And more successful and happier than me. I think that's kind of the American dream. What I tell you as as a as an adult, you know, in the back nine of my career, um, the reason I keep doing it is is deeply personal. And you know, on one dimension, I say this tongue in cheek, but you know, there's an element of truth to you know to everything. Um, I'm a manic depressive with a Napoleon complex. So that's usually my one line when people ask me, geez, if I had your money or if I had your success, I'd retire. Um, So I usually, that's the line I give them. Um, You know, but the reality is it's what I love to do. And I had the good fortune in my life to um, fall into something that I'm reasonably good at. I love to do. So, you know, frankly, it doesn't feel like work, but maybe 10% of the time. I don't golf. I don't ski. Um, I'm into music. And my family, and outside of that, you know, this is my, you know, recreation. It's my vocation. It's my passion. So, you know, I don't see. I don't think you retire from your passions in life.
0: And you brought up your upbringing. Uh, so, w- where did you grow up? Uh, what were you like as a child? And what did your parents do for work?
1: So I, I was born in Yonkers, New York. Um, moved moved to Boston, you know, with my family. Um, I was a rabble rouser. I, I was into punk rock. I had a, a cousin that came back from Europe. He was a student at BU um, in the mid-70s, and he brought back all this music, and it blew my mind. And I basically dropped everything and um, got into that whole music scene, and that's what I ultimately thought I was going to do for a living. So, you know, unfortunately, my grades and everything else in my life suffered, and I just got totally inzo- absorbed in this movement. It was happening in England with the kids there. And, um, you know, it didn't really take hold here because it was really a socioeconomic thing. So people didn't understand it here, but it was something that was unique. And, um, you know, I made it my own. And, um, you know, it caused me lots of problems, you know, as a young person growing up in the late 70s and early 80s in suburban Boston with green hair and earrings and stuff. But, um, taught so me a lot like about sex pistols, and
2: bad passions.
1: Passions. Like sex, pist- sex pistols, Ramones, yeah, um, bands like 999, yeah, um, just it was you know, just the the original people, generation X all these, all these, just all this music was coming and it was disrupting everything that had you know been laid out before. Mm-hmm. And um, the irony is that there's a good analog to what I ended up doing for a living because. I use technology and technology companies to disrupt trends in technology. So there are a lot of parallels. And I think it it definitely influenced, you know, my professional career in, you know, many, many positive ways. But I was a, I was a punk. And, um, you know, I was, you know, I had a big mouth. And um, I was always in the mix of, you know, some sort of controversy and trouble. So probably not Unlike
0: how I am today, well, then you went on to attend Suffolk. How, how did you get into the tech industry after school?
1: yeah, so so you, let me finish the other question you asked. Uh, my father worked for the phone company, and my mom met my dad at the phone company, but became a stay at home mom i 'm um, the oldest of five, so she took care of us and you know, my dad worked for the phone company um, how i and, and actually that 's a good segue into how I got to Suffolk. I got to Suffolk because as I told you, I got I got absorbed in this punk rock movement, so I stopped attending high school. I stopped attending classes, and I was just like playing music and thought that's what I was going to do, and I didn't think I needed an education to do that, you know, much to the sh- chagrin of my parents, but long story short, um, met a girl, had to have some sort of legitimate future, um, but unfortunately, my grades didn't support that, so I, I couldn't even get into the the publics, you know, the public colleges in Massachusetts at the time. So I, I believe I was rejected from UMass Lowell, or it might have been University Lowell at the time. So I ended up getting to Suffolk because it's the only place that would have me. And the reason they had me was they had a big investment at the time. Program with at the time the phone company was Nine X, and they were doing a lot of management education. So my dad was able to call in some favors and get them to accept me. Um, even though I probably didn't have the grades, um, you know, to get there. Um, and I got in and, you know, I actually did better in college than I did in high school because of the amount of freedom and you could sort of choose what you studied and, you know, things that interested me at, I always excelled at and things that I didn't, or I got bored with, you know, I would blow off. So I sort of, got my footing that you know I could do school if I needed to um, and that's how I got to Suffolk.
0: That's a cool background story so uh, now after Suffolk obviously you you got into the tech industry so what was the you know the first roles after school?
1: So well well I had a I had a variety of jobs through school so I still had to pay for it and um, my first foray into the into the computer industry was I was working with my brother and um, he, he, he was sort of a legitimate computer science guy who was working for um, this guy, Harry Ernst, a Harvard economist. And um, I ended up selling financial forecasting software on the phone and research that they were, you know, they, they were doing with clients. So sort to of support myself and then um, the business was sold to Lotus and, you know, I'm dating myself, but this would have been in maybe 1980 or something. And, um, it was, you know, then I realized that, you know, it was lucrative, you know, there was an opportunity. And at the time I was selling these on the phone so I could still maintain my punk rock persona because I could be whoever I needed to be on the phone. Right. They probably wouldn't buy software from some dude with green hair and earrings and leather pants. But, you know, as far as they knew, I was in a three piece suit and a crew cut. <laughs> so awesome. it sort of taught me that I could make I was good at this and I could make money at it, and it taught me that i if I was good at it and could make money at it, I didn't have to conform to anybody's um vision of me but my own, which was probably the first time that I realized that being in business and excelling what it really gives you is personal freedom, and you know that that's super important or was super important to me, and it drove me. So I was really never motivated by money. I was motivated by relationships with people, people I was passionate about, ideas I was passionate about, and sort of, you know, being able to disrupt the status quo.
0: How did you learn how to sell? Did it just come natural?
1: If, if I think about the experiences that shaped my professional career, there are,
0: you know, there's several mentors
1: along the way, but if I think about the, you know, actual material events, I attribute a lot of my business acumen and my, my sales acumen to the fact that I had a paper out that went through so I'm the oldest of five, poor boys and a girl, and all the boys in the family maintained this paper out. We had three hundred customers, and it was it was, a, it was a, a source of revenue to the family, which I didn't understand as a young man, but it augmented you know my father's salary, which was, you know modest. And I learned more on that paper out, and not delivering the papers, but collecting and getting paid, and the interaction with with the you know the, the clients on the route, so a lot of my salesmanship and my ability to interact and negotiate you know things that you know I depend on to this day i didn 't learn in school. I learned on that paper out and I, you know and I, and I think work ethic I learned because i 've been working since I was seven. So, it, it'd be unnatural for me not to work, which is another part of the first question you asked me. Why do I continue to do it? It's what I do, it's what I know to do.
0: And that's, I love, I love, always love the upbringing stories because that's, you know, my dad was a entrepreneur for, you know, from the point I was born. And he had a, a leather coat factory that was 10,000 square feet. And I had to clean every Sunday while kids were, you know, out playing sports. I was cleaning a leather coat factory. And that taught me, uh, you know, what hard work was, <laughs> like as a young kid. And then, and, yeah. uh, and then my like first job outside of that was working at the Holiday Inn that ca- taught me customer service and you know, taking care of you know uh, you know that the, 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 the uh, room service was delivered properly, the luggage, the banquet setup. It was just such an amazing experience. So that's funny,
1: hundred percent, agree with that. I, I think it's a shame that that paper outs don't exist. Oh, I know so, so much people to learn, so many lessons, and it's your own business because the way it worked back in the day. I had to go down with my mom, and we would buy the papers. Yeah, and yeah. then you know I had to deliver them and collect. If I didn't collect, she was out the money.
0: And I like how you brought up the uh, yeah. you had to collect the money piece too, because then you need to learn real customer service that you know make sure people pay you. Customer
1: Service negotiate. I'll, I'll give you an example, and I, I've given this several times, but I think it's I think it's telling in terms of the question. I, I distinctly remember having clients. So one of one of the big clients we had in in the route was it was an apartment building and you know apartment buildings people are you know transient they come they go and we did people that okay they owe us eight weeks and they moved out so now i'm stuck so we lost that money mm-hmm. i remember you know people that i'd go i'd knock on the door i could smell the food for you know for dinner mm-hmm. i'd go at dinner time that's the only time i could get some of them and, you know, I'd knock, knock, knock. They wouldn't answer the door and I would just keep going back or I'd wait and I'd just keep knocking mm-hmm. almost to the point of being obnoxious. They'd answer, uh, oh, sorry, I didn't know you were there in baloney. And, you know, th- maybe they owed me for a month's worth of papers mm-hmm. and they would pay me for the month, you know, so maybe it was two bucks a week. And then they would give me a quarter tip and I'd say, did you get the paper all four weeks? Oh, yeah oh, I thought maybe you didn't because you only tipped me for one week. <laughs> so when you, when you can do that at eight years old, what I can tell you is I do the same thing now, except for I do it selling companies worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's the same thing.
0: <laughs> that is an awesome story. But now <laughs> it's
1: just built into muscle memory. So I don't think, you know, I don't think about it. So So that had a major influence. And the other thing I would tell you is you know, attempting to be a musician, being different, right? I think it's taught me a lot about just accepting who I am, being comfortable with, with who I am, what I am and what I'm not, and surrounding myself with people that I'm not and being comfortable with that. And that's allowed me to build tremendous teams that have executed and done amazing things. So I think music and that paper out probably influenced me more than anything. And then obviously, you know, at a certain point, I had people take an interest in me, you know, that made, you know, the real difference in, you know, the trajectory of my my career.
0: Well, the trajectory of your career, you did rise through the sales ranks rapidly. Correct. At, at what point did you start to, you know, learn how to manage and build sales teams and, you know, starting to scale things?
1: So, so I, I would say that I learned how to sell at digital. I learned how to lead and manage at Wellfleet. And then from there, I evolved from a VP of sales to a CEO, more out of um, necessity than ambition. My only ambition was to be a VP of sales because um, I loved selling. I loved that whole thing. I'm not a super technical guy. I'm not the guy that's going to invent something, um, but I'm the guy that's going to monetize it. But at the point that I transitioned into being a CEO, it was simply because I was dissatisfied with, the way engineering was delivering product, the way we were marketing. And I wanted more control over the ultimate outcome. And, th- and that's how I really moved into being CEO. It was not, you know, an ambition of mine. Um, it was not an ego trip of mine. I felt like, you know, as, as the head of sales, you know, we can only control so much, right? We can make commitments to a customer, you know, but engineering still has to deliver on it for instance, um, and I'm a believer in sales. You sell yourself first, your company second, and your product third because you control 100% who you are and how you behave and interact with your client. You control to a lesser degree but some degree sort of how you represent your company, and you have little control. You have input but little control over the actual um, Quality and, and value proposition of your product, but if you get the first one right, then you're in the door.
0: Which company were you CEO at first? Was it Acopia?
1: Acopia was the was the first uh, CEO role, but I would say it, I learned to be a CEO at Arrow Point. Is it Arrow Point? We we had uh, uh, the the founder of the company, Cheng Wu, the brilliant visionary. You know, he wasn't. He was a you know, pretty introverted person. So, you know, over the course of the, of that company, I was a driving force operationally. You know, and and he was in terms of you know the product. So I took over really the leadership of the company because it was something he was not comfortable with. So, you know, I became an informal leader there um, of all operational aspects of the company, and then. After we went public and sold to Cisco, um, we started Acopia, and um, you know, he at that point, you know, he had recognized, you know, how we should work together optimally, and you know, he was the chairman, and um, I was the present CEO.
0: I see. So that so it was the same uh, founder for Acopia that was ArrowPoint. Correct. Which led to another acquisition.
1: Uh, that's right. So Acopia. Was sold in um, summer of two thousand and seven to F um, Five Networks in
0: Seattle, and from there it was another you know success story, and that's a theme, common theme for what we're talking about here. Uh, you know, Vertica was known as you know definitely a high flying company in the Boston tech scene that was acquired by HP. And, you know, amazing team there as well. And and what did you learn from that experience at Vertica?
1: Yeah, so so Vertica was different from the standpoint that I you know, everything else prior had been, you know, prominent was early days, Arrowpoint Point Nicopia, you know, I was involved early on and this was a company that was going that had some issues, um, but the, the core nucleus, the technology and the people was outstanding. So I was coming in, you know, with the mandate from the investors to figure out a way to get the company sold and stabilized. So it was a different experience in that, you know, I was really coming in you know, as a professional CEO to, you know, to right the ship and, and get the company over the one yard line, um, you know, which fortunately we did. Um, but what I would say is in all of these successes, what I've learned is that they all were, suc- were successful and in history, that's what people see. They all failed multiple times before succeeding.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: At Prominent, we had, a, we had a layer three switch which 30 days before we delivered it, we found out that chips didn't work properly and we had a layer two switch. And we figured out a way to sort of reposition it. And I was able to take revenue from zero to 40 million in a year and we were able to sell it to, um, to Lucent. Um, at Arrow Point, we took down a third of the internet. Mike <laughs> O'Dell was on our advisory board um, and he resigned over it. Uh-oh. And we thought we were dead. But, you know, we persevered, we dug in and, you know, and then, and then frankly, a year and a half later, we had an offer or a couple of offers from the company that were below a billion dollars, were several hundred million dollars. So they were lucrative. And there was a lot of, a lot of um, controversy amongst the management team as to whether we should take it or not and try to keep going, try to go public. And we ultimately turned down the offer. And a year later, we went public, still one of the top five IPOs of all time, meaning that we went out and then what happened to the stock. So instead of like these stocks you see today that, you know, they go public and then they drop 50% of the value and Joe Q public gets screwed. Our stock actually, you know, drove up 50%, even though on April 1st, 2000, the market crashed, our stock held. And then ultimately we sold it for a 35% premium on top of our market cap. To Cisco. Yeah, there's you know,
0: always that, that pers- perseverance you story.
1: You know, every one of it. At, at Acopia, we took down the trade floor at Bear Stearns when there was a Bear Stearns. <sighs> and they threatened to throw our product out um, and put it out in the, on the sidewalk in Wall Street. And they said, no one in Wall Street will ever buy your product.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and we, we dug in, we fixed it, you know, and we survived. And ultimately, obviously, we succeeded. So the reason I raise this, I think an important story an important message to entrepreneurs that if you persevere, you can ultimately succeed, but you should set your expectations that the distinction between companies that succeed and don't in many instances, the difference is those that how they respond to adversity, how they respond to the struggle, because a lot of people, you know, when it gets hard, they go somewhere else. Or when it gets hard, they play the blame game. And what I love about startups is it's a zero sum game and it's us against the world. And if you take that mentality, you realize that you're all in it together and you're all either going to win as a team or lose as a team. It creates a level of trust and transparency that large organizations, political organizations simply don't have. And it's so powerful, yeah. you know, but you've got to be, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to succeed, be prepared to fail and overcome failure. And if you can't do that, you're not going to succeed in the long run because I don't know any of these. I mean, startups are hard. They're not glamorous. They're hard work. They're dedication. You don't do it for the money. If you did it for the money and you're smart, there's, there are easier ways to make the money. There'll be a quantum Wall Street.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I never think about a financial outcome when I start a project. I say, do I love it? Do I believe in it? And if you do that and you go execute, you work hard. You know, then the money comes, the success comes. But you've got to be prepared that you're going to fail, that you're going to struggle, and how you're going to respond to that.
0: Moving forward, you ended up in venture capital. So, what what made you decide to move to more of the investment side of things?
1: Yeah, so that was really a personal thing. I've got five children of my own, and my youngest daughter had a medical issue, and I just sold Vertica, and I was spending a lot of time with um, HP. on the west coast and she was diagnosed with this issue and my wife was spending you know weeks on end sleeping on a a chair in children's hospital and she just called me out and said hey you know you've proven that you can be a great businessman prove you can be a great husband and father i need you and you know you got to get off the road and help me here Mm -hmm. and I wanted, you know, I wanted to continue to work, and as I say, it's a big part of my satisfaction in life, you know. But, you know, my family comes first, and you know, I love her for calling me out, because most people won't. And I had to figure out a way that I could stay relevant and be home more, and be able to, you know, have more of a, you know, a regimented schedule, so I could be counted on around the house to help out. So I decided that I would go into venture um, for a period of time. And I did that and we raised a couple of successful funds and have some great investments and it gave me an opportunity to continue to mentor people which I enjoy and is important to me um, and try to instill the, the beliefs and values I have in building companies into a you know a, you know a broader set of people which I was able to do and I'm thankful for um, and I did that for about six years and, and a couple of funds but I didn't want to be an executive producer. You know, I I, I like to be, you know, the star. And, you know, when I took on the venture role, one of the things I resented about venture people is that they take credit for, you know, the things that the entrepreneur does. And when the entrepreneur doesn't win, you know, then they look at it as like, well, it was an execution issue. Mm -hmm. So I just, you know, I hated that about venture capitalists and I didn't want to be like that. Um, so I, I accepted that I had to leave my ego at the door and it was all about the people I was investing and not about me. And that was good for me to do. I think it's, it matured me and broadened my perspective. And I think it makes me better as a CEO today at AtScale. Um, but that's how I got into it. You did have a question for me, I believe around what did I learn in venture? What I learned is what I didn't have to, I didn't have to spend six years in venture to learn. So one of the mentors in my life, so I told you about those experiences, but the, that shaped my, my professional career and music and the paper up the other thing that, that significantly shaped my ability to execute on whatever potential I had uh, were the mentors in my life and the people that I looked up to in my business career, people like um, Ken Olson and digital. I learned so much um, about that company and, organizations and caring about people and how that translates into business and the alignment between customers and investors um, and employees. And it's actually singular. If you really think about it and you really understand your business and it has any sustainability, it has to be complete alignment between those constituencies. And I learned that from Ken Olson and I learned it from Paul Severino at Wellfleet. Um, and my mentor, Paul Ferry, the founder of Matrix Partners, who took an interest in me early days. And I, you know, and I ran or um, participated in many of his companies from Wealthfleet to Promenet to Copia, etc. And, you know, I've stayed in contact with him through the years. And when I told him I was going to make this transition, he said, Chris, you're a thoroughbred. So I'll invest in you to do anything because you're going to figure out a way to win but I don't think you should do it. And this was outside of the, the personal issue, which I, I didn't disclose to him or discuss with him. Right. And he, and he, so I said, well, what, you know, you've been doing it for a long time. What do you think I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like. And the first thing he said, which is the thing that I think of when you asked me that question. And his answer was partners are for dancing. <laughs> and I thought about it I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't get it. Um, but I can tell you, I got it, you know, by the time that I was done with it. You know, when you're running a company and you're part of a team, that's one thing. Partnerships are almost like franchises. You know, it was multiple ships passing in the night, loosely connected from a from an um, economic standpoint. Um, but there was no sense of team or camaraderie, you know, or frankly, transparency. Because there's so many tricky issues in, you know, venture financing and so many conflicts with the entrepreneur in times when there is an alignment between the venture capitalist and the entrepreneur. And, um, you know, I just didn't like that. And I missed sort of having a team and a camaraderie. And I felt like as much as I could see it from afar in some of the great companies I invested in and it would built like a data robot is one of my proudest um, investments. This guy, Jer- Jeremy, I mean, he took this thing from nothing to, you know, it's incredible, pro- probably one of the hottest companies on either coast. And seeing him build it now, I think it's four or 500 employees. You know, I just was jonesing for it. I was missing it, you know, but I wanted to be respectful to the entrepreneurs and I didn't want to cast a shadow, you know, over them in their operational companies so i you know i guided you know from a distance you know but i missed the interaction with the people the excitement the struggle and i was just speaking to a young person this morning about you know the ride run he called me to thank me for the opportunity at scale how much fun he's having it's changing his life he's learning so much and I said remember all this and what i can tell you you don't believe me now you will after the outcome is not, it sounds cliche, but the outcome is not what you're going to ultimately care about. It is the journey, the people you meet, the closeness of relationships you build, what you learn, the things along the journey, the successes and the failures, really what shape your experience in any endeavor. You know, the outcomes are important and that's how we pay the rent and that's how we are able to create more opportunity for more people. But I can tell you from having several successful exits, the most satisfying of all of those, you know, were related to the experiences, the people and those people, you know, the customers that believe in you when no one else does. The employees that join that believe in you when no one else does. Um, That's the journey that you should care about. That's the thing that shapes your life. The outcomes, you know, even if they're all good outcomes, you know, they give you an economic benefit. You know, I've also learned in my life that, you know, outside of having enough to be able to choose what you want to do with whom you want to do it, the rest of it's bullshit. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always a faster car. You you get wrapped up in always wanting, right. Mm -hmm. And you get confused between what you want and what you need. And when, when you're confused about that, you can never be satisfied no matter how much you have. If you figure out what you need, you know, then you can be a satisfied person with modest outcomes, with great outcomes. It doesn't matter. It doesn't control you. And you know me, I, I want to be free. So that's worth more to me than you know any amount of money. So I think that that understanding the outcome is good, and understanding the goal, and and there's a reason for that and allows us to do it again. But the real value is in what what you do, and how you do it, and the people you do it with, and You know, I explained this, you know, and I think, you know, he listened, but, you know, he won't understand until after AtScale has a great outcome. And he's like, okay, is that all there is? And I felt that, particularly I remember at Arrowpoint. I remember after the IPO, kind of like waking up on a Saturday morning, we had a big IPO party at the House of Blues with all our customers and friends of the company. And I woke up and I was just like, okay, now what? (laughs) <laughs> and it's a weird feeling you know is a weird feeling so i really do believe it's about the journey and if you're focused on the journey and the people in your journey the outcomes you know they come or they don't and some some of those things are related to timing and you know things outside of your control but even within the context of the things you control at the end of the day the the outcome you know is it's part of the journey but it's not the journey
0: but one of the things that's pretty obvious throughout your your career is you've had this knack either as an operator or as an investor to uh, invest in fundamental shifts in technology that you saw coming or you know oftentimes a founder might have a great idea but you know too early or whatever the case may be, most of the companies that you've been involved in seem to figure out the market or the timing was right so do you have this just knack to look at these fundamental technology shifts and see where you know the ball's going or the puck is going
1: so I, I think that um, I think there are a number of factors so I've had the good fortune I tell people this all the time I couldn't have had the career that I've had to date I'm not smart enough if I tried to plan it so I, you know I think that I keep it simple. I invest in, in people I believe in, in ideas I believe in. Um, I think starting out in sales has served me well because I'm focused on markets and seeing spaces in market. and I think that's what's helped me to, to you know to pick wisely. And I think picking wisely is 90% of the battle. I don't know that I'm much better or worse than anybody as an operator. You know, I'm sure that, you know there are definitely people way smarter than me but I've picked well, I picked the right markets and the right people, you know, that have built the right technologies. Um, and, and I think AtScale is a great example of that. You know, this company was, you know, it's six years old and Dave Mariani, the founder had an incredible vision, but he struggled in getting getting that completed technically and figuring out, you know, where they should focus on the market. And those are things that, you know, I Collaborate with people on and I think about. And, you know, that's allowed me to, you know, to identify and see beyond sort of the struggles that the company had previously, to see the core, the people, the technology, where the market was going, where this could go to serve that market. Um, And we're in fact in a different market than when I originally met the company a year ago. And that's part of, you know, what I do. But I, I think. You know, even to the extent that I'm picking and identifying these things, you know, I have a lot of support from people in relationships that I've built throughout the years. And that, you know, I, I think being able to pick still comes back to surrounding yourself with great people. So I don't pick alone. I get data points from everybody on my team. And then I sort of, you know, process those and then I decide where we're going to go. And they trust me that if I say we're doing, we're going student body right. We're going student body right. But I take everyone's input and it shapes, you know, my opinion and ideas. And then we go. So, you know, it's not just me. It's a, it's a team of people. Um, I include customers in my assessment. I include partners in my assessment. I include employees that I'm going to bring into the deal in my, in my assessment. Um, So it's, I think part of it goes back to just being self-aware. And understanding what you're good at, what you're not, and surrounding yourself and getting that help, I'm just saying it's okay to win alone. It's unacceptable to lose alone. There's no reason. And if you lose alone, what it tells me is that you're insecure, uh, and it tells me that you're not aware, -aware, self-aware, and it it ultimately tells me that you're not really willing to do what it takes to win. You want to be right more than you want to win. I don't mind being wrong if
0: I win. Well, today you're at um, at scale. What what is at scale? What does the company do?
1: So at scale is the first virtual data warehouse in the market. So we're able to go into legacy OLAP and Lick environments and provide one virtual view of these disparate data stores. So so we deliver the true concept of big data to Fortune two thousand companies that have. Disparate data sources that you know that they can't aggregate into one view, so that they can process. And we do that without disrupting any of their BI tools. Um, so once we put this virtualization layer in, um, you know, and obviously there are, there are many technical, historic examples of this. The most well-known probably being VMware. But once that virtualization layer is put in between the BI user and the backend data, we're able to. Move that data to the cloud non-disruptively, so we can take people on a journey from legacy data stores like Teradata, and we can bring them non-disruptively to Redshift, Snowflake, Google BigQuery, unlocking all the value, the agility, etc, of the cloud, for legacy applications that you know, and data that has been hanging around for 20, 30 years.
0: And Did you already know about this? company, Or when did you meet? You said you met one of the, uh, the uh, co-founder and CEO at one point. Like, What was it that appealed about this company for you to, to join?
1: So, so first and foremost, Dave Mariani, the founder and CEO at the time, was incredibly passionate about the idea. And it had come to him from being a customer on the other side. He was the chief data officer at Yahoo. And he had this data management problem. That he couldn't solve with the existing marketplace, so he subsequently left and started this this company. And he was so passionate, so articulate, um, so precise in understanding the problem that I believed him that he was competent enough to to build the solution based on his understanding of the problem. And um, you know, he he ultimately had done it, um, but the company was not marketed or being sold in a way that was taking advantage of the brilliance of his vision and the uniqueness of it. Um, but it was him. I, you know, like I said, you know, the person was, was Dave Mariani, Matt Bard. So I fell in love with them, their passion. I saw they were struggling in the sales and marketing and operational execution and that I knew that those were things that I could fix if they trusted me and if they were willing to make hard decisions. but let me make the hard decisions. So, I'm at a point in my career. I, I don't. I don't need to go anywhere. I'm not wanted. So, they had to sell me that they really understood what the challenges were in the company, what where I was going to lead them, and the things I was going to do, and could they accept that?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, they you know they came back to me that you know that they wanted to win, and they knew that you know that. You know, these functional changes outside of the the core product needed to be made and, you know, that that I was the person to do it. And that's how we put it together. Um, So it was a combination of, you know, the, the model I told you. Fell in love with the people, fell in love with the market and fell in love with the product. And I had an idea on how to position it to make it much bigger, much faster than they were making it. and Fortunately for us, you know, we, we were right in the decisions we made and the, and the company's trajectory, you know, has 360. You know, the, the growth, were doubling. We've, we've blown out the last three quarters. Um, we've got significant relationships that have been announced with Google, with Snowflake, and we're, we're getting a who's who of global 2000 customers. But the real hard work was that they built this and they needed help understanding how it would apply it to the market and what markets to apply it to and then getting in the right personnel to support that.
0: As far as the actual growth of the company from an employee headcount, uh, this is a West Coast company that you've been also now building a Boston office, right?
1: That's correct. So one, one of the challenges that the company has is the West Coast is, you know, overinflated. Mm-hmm. So the cost of acquiring talent there is insane. Um, and it's not sustainable. And I, think, I think history is going to prove that out over the next 24 months, um, but we had to figure out a, way, a more cost-effective way of growing and investing in people and markets. And I think one of the things that shifted in enterprise tech companies is even at early stages, every company today in 2019 needs to see themselves as a global company global customers, global market, global work. So, you know, what we've done is invested in our own development center, not an outsource, our own development center, our own employees in Sofia, Bulgaria, that we're able to leverage the great talent we have in San Mateo and that extensive talent as a force multiplier. So we're able to hire 10 engineers in Sofia, Bulgaria leveraged by one engineer in San Mateo. Mm -hmm. Now I've, I've marginalized the cost of that San engineer across 10 more engineers. Now they look much more reasonable, mm-hmm. right? So a, a cost and productivity perspective. Um, so I think thinking about being a global company, it's hard to do. Logistically, it's more work, there's more risk. Um, but I think you have to view yourself as a startup. You have to view yourself as a global company. You have to run your company also like it's a public company. Because at the end of the day, the likely exits for any enterprise tech company are an IPO, which you know you need to be, you know, clean for that to do that, um, and you have to have the right hygiene for a public company. And the other alternative is you end up selling to a public company, mm-hmm. and they don't want to inherit bad hygiene. So you need to run your company with the discipline of a public company, whether you're private or public, and you need to run it as a global company, whether you're Three people in Boston, you know, or three thousand people all over the globe. You, you need to contemplate a global market.
0: What's the plan for you know? Since our audience is largely you know, Boston and, and New York, what's the plan for the growth of the Boston office? Is it sales, marketing, customer success? Yeah. Like- so
1: yeah. So it's a great question. So the bulk of development will grow in Sofia, Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. All other operations will emanate from Boston because of my contacts because we're closer to key markets from here that we're in um, and because I have access to trusted talent. So with the exception of the development center in um, San Mateo and development centers in Sofia, Bulgaria, we have sales, marketing, customer support and success finance um, all emanating out of our, our Boston office. So I think we, We've gone from zero to 20, 25 people in the last 45 days. We're actually out of we're we're out of the space, <laughs> or we're out of space, I should say. So, which we're, we're contemplating taking over more space in the building, but um, we're growing very, very fast, and um, people are excited by the opportunity. And um, you know, we've been well embraced. Obviously, I spent a lot of time in Boston, so I knew I could I could ramp faster here and more cost effectively. And while it's the, the savings isn't as dramatic from San Fran, you know, to Bulgaria, it's it, it it is still significant savings from San Fran to Boston.
2: Right.
1: So we're saving money. We've got more known quantities. We're able to grow faster. Um, so you know, Boston, you know, will probably end up being the, you know, from a head headcount perspective, you know, the, the the largest of the three offices. Yeah, you know, but they're all equally valuable in different ways.
0: Chris, what, what advice would you give to founders that are, you know, that they don't have the sales uh, pedigree that you have and they need to figure out, you know, building out their first go to market sales team for an enterprise company.
1: So that's a great and important question. I think that a common mistake early tech founders make, and I've seen this as a venture capitalist, not so much, you know, as an operator because I have the sales orientation, Is that they're dismissive of it, that they think, okay, the hard part, the part that requires intellect and being special is about the idea. And I think what I've learned through my years as an operator and as an investor is that, you know, it's really not the idea, it's the people
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and the people that execute on the idea. Because, you know, ideas actually are the commodity. Special people that have what it takes to go execute for a period of time you know, to build something. That's what's unique in, the, in, in putting those people together. So I think, I think that if I was a technical founder, advice I'd give a technical founder is find a good business partner. Somebody that you look and respect to, to be the equivalent of you in your technical domain, in a business domain. Um, somebody that believes in you, believes in your idea, and can articulate and translate your idea into a business model first. If they can do that, now you can position yourself from a sales perspective to hire salespeople or a salesperson. So I think if you don't have a strong business acumen or business experience, getting someone to collaborate with it does even early days is important and i think that technical entrepreneurs wait too long they get bad advice from vcs to wait that long wait um and i and i don't think it's too early to ever have a business partner maybe that person you know gets stock and doesn't take a salary until you know the product's done and you're in market but having that person on early days it's going to inform the product and one You know, another common mistake that emanates from not having a business partner early, and and the VC is not your business partner. That's an investor. Um, A business partner is someone that's 100% aligned with you, meaning, you know, they sit on the cap table, same side of the cap table as you, etc. But one of the things that technical founders miss is the business model isn't created by the business person or the sales person. It's actually created by the person that invents the product. The product informs the kind of business model you can, you can use, you can invoke. So it's super important to have somebody with go to market and business experience collaborating with you as you're building your product, as you're, you're developing your idea. Because one part of the the life cycle of a company is once it's built, you got to get it into the market. And if and if you haven't thought about that in the design of the product, it'll impact your business model. And a great example would be a company like SolarWinds is a great example that's touted as like, you know, this high velocity sales model. Well, high velocity sales models aren't like any epiphany for anybody, Mm -hmm. right? Everybody understands, hey, if you can sell stuff on the phone or on the web without having to hire expensive salespeople, you know, for the same amount of money, then that's a good deal. You should do it. Right. So there's no epiphany there. The reason not everybody runs the SolarWinds model is because some people have products that have way too much friction to get you know in their sales cycle mm-hmm. to you know, be able to be sold that way. And the example would be SolarWinds, something they did that was very astute and why they scaled that high-velocity model is because they identified a market and a product-market fit where the, the buyer... Of the technology with the consumer
0: of the technology that's great great advice what one of the other things that you're known for Chris is your charitable side and the amazing work you've done with st. Baldrick's foundation um, how did you get involved with the organization and uh, how's how are things going with you know tech gives back and all the great events that you host
1: yeah sure so so, so I get involved for a couple reasons so, so one I haven't directly been affected, but but I, I've seen people and seen families, you know, that have been affected by pediatric cancer. And as I started poking around, you know, realized that there wasn't alignment with the drug companies, meaning they weren't investing because it's a small market. And you know, the US government really is the the only consistent investor in research for pediatric cancer. And one of the things that I focused on in my charitable trust are children's causes. And I got involved initially. My first philanthropic endeavor was was um, Jumpstart, which is a uh, literacy program for inner-city kids.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just feel like, you know what? As a young person, not having the same opportunities as others because of some circumstance outside of your control mm-hmm. is just bullshit. And I wanted to figure out, ways that I could affect that. Right. And with respect to to Jumpstart and their literacy program, I was compelled into action when I learned that the prison population 18 years out is forecasted based on the third grade literacy rate. Because you don't know how to read by third grade, reading experts say it's it's near impossible to recover from that within the context of a, you know, a public school. Mm-hmm. And these are kids that, you know, they may have single parent homes and the parents are literate, may have no parents growing up with a grandparent um, that isn't literate. And if you don't know how to read and write and you're in school, you know, kids tell you you're stupid. Yeah. You can have an IQ 160 and on know how to read because you were never taught. Right. Right. And imagine going to a place every day where you're told that you're stupid mm-hmm. and you know, good. Well, guess what? When you're old enough and big enough to say, fuck that, it's exactly what you do. So you leave it, you know, 13 to 15 because mm-hmm. you're not going to go to places where they tell you you're stupid all day and you don't have a high school diploma, you don't know how to read or write and you got to eat. So what do
0: you do? Yep, you go down the wrong path.
1: Right? Yep. So that's what compelled me there. And similarly, every three, three minutes a child is diagnosed with cancer mm. and the, and the and the drug companies are focused on cancer cures but for adults and pediatric cancer is different and I learned about this through my association with St Baldrick's that I sought out when I wanted to try to affect this and I liked their approach and there there are a number of great organizations but what I liked is they were approaching it like a business almost like an investor business so what they're the largest single funder of pediatric cancer outside of the United States government, but they take almost like a venture investment approach. So they invest in people from all over the world. They find the best and brightest research and they invest behind that. So they're not confined by one organization in creating viability for that organization. They're simply scouring the world finding people that have interesting research that they think could turn into cures for kids. Mm -hmm. And I love that approach and I invested behind it and I wanted to broaden what I was doing. So we created tech tackles cancer in part to create a broader platform in part to raise more money and scale my foundation beyond even my own means. And as importantly, to engage young people, entrepreneurs, in understanding that there are things bigger than them. And, you know, I get way more back from Tech Tackles Cancer than I've given it. Yeah. Engaging young people um, in understanding it shapes their perspective. I think it makes them better entrepreneurs. Being entrepreneurs is, is tough, right? It's not as tough as being eight years old knowing you're going to die of cancer. Yeah. Because eight years old, you understand what death is, right? It's not like when you're two, right? You know. And if you want a profile in courage, if you want, if you want someone, a mentor to look up to at, you know as a startup, go look at one of those kids. Read a profile about one of those kids. Imagine being eight years old. Know you're going to die. Mm. And approaching every day you have with optimism, with hope, with spirit. That's what an entrepreneur is. And my hope is that through my work at Tech Tackles Cancer and with organizations like St. Baldrick's and One Mission and Children's Hospital, that it's going to make the young people that get involved in this better entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. right? I mean, imagine, right? Everything you do in life as an entrepreneur is batting practice versus what those kids go through in their parents. Yeah. So I think it has a lot of intrinsic ben- benefit to entrepreneurs to be involved in that journey, you know, and obviously helping those kids. But I think it it offers a lot to them. And as Tech Tackles Cancer, we create events that also create networking opportunities and it has legitimate business benefit to investors and vendors. And that's why we get support from people like Oracle and IBM and, um, you know, venture firms and, you know, and major startups. You know on both coasts, and we're actually expanding you know the goal is ultimately to do this you know across the world but it's boston first u.s second world third and we're expanding it. and i'm hoping that we'll have events we're playing an event late spring similar to the one we did in november in you know boston here out on the west coast we want to create sort of a challenge east coast west coast and my expectation is then we'll move into the middle of the country targeting maybe a place like austin um and then we'll expand you know into other nfl cities in the us and other major cities across the world because as you know cancer unfortunately has no boundaries
0: yeah well chris thanks for all the meaningful work you're doing uh you know charitable uh obviously giving uh you know the, the tech ecosystem in boston just you know con- incredible support through the years of building companies and um you know everything you've done is uh, obviously Impacts in so many different ways. So, uh, you know, keep us posted at VentureFizz, of course, of uh, all the events. I mean, we support uh, Tech Tackles Cancer every year, but you know, these other events you're talking about, please keep us informed.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I look forward to meeting you in person. And I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me.